in the psalm uh, that we read today between the, f- the first two readings, there was a verse that was not read in Psalm 139, and I've told you about it before, but I always believe repetition is the mother of learning. Uh, my colleague, Margaret Irwin, who was the rector of All Saints Palo Alto for a long time and was in my colleague group for a number of years uh, before she retired and moved back to Wisconsin, uh, had a daughter who was going to have a baby, and she went with her one day to the doctor uh, for a ultrasound of the baby. And so Margaret went with her, and when she was uh, looking at the ultrasound that the uh, nurse was doing, she saw the baby's head and it hadn't come together yet. You know, if you see it in the ultrasound, the head is still open. And it gradually comes together. And she said, when I looked at the ultrasound, I thought of Psalm 139, verse 12. For you yourself created my inmost parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Now, this was written a long time ago. There were no ultrasounds, right? So it was just an interesting thing that she thought of when this happened, which is sort of in the spiritual life what happens to you after a while as you begin to create something that the uh, writers on this for a long time have called habitual recollection. Things pop into your head. And remember a few weeks ago I mentioned that uh, in this YouTube video from Harvard University from the Veritas Forum, Sean Kelly, the uh, head of the philosophy department at Harvard, told the story of his wife, whose mother was raised in China, and her mother uh, used to make her, as a little girl, memorize hundreds of lines of Chinese poetry every day. And when she got to be 12 years old, she said to her mother, I cannot stand this anymore. I don't know why you're making me do this. It is very burdensome to me, and I simply cannot understand why I'm being made to do it. And her mother said, the reason I'm doing this is this. Uh, as It was preceded by one of the things that our parents have all, all told us, which was, when you're older, you'll thank me for this, right? And so she said, one of these days, as you get older and you have memorized these, one of these lines will come into your head unbidden. And it will be the result of something you're experiencing right now. And at that time, you will be able to uh, receive some benefit from, from that memory And you will also realize that you are associated with a very old and great culture. And you're part of something that is much bigger than yourself. And so in our tradition as Christian people, uh, the biblical uh, text is one of the places where we find that. And so are the things that flow out of our tradition with a capital T as Episcopalians like the Book of Common Prayer and places where we can um, memorize things uh, and understand them. 
So today, though, in my sermon, if I can remember it, I'm going to look and see if, oh, yes. Uh, I'm going to preach again about Genesis, about Paul in Romans 8, and then about the parable of the weeds and the wheat. The old, in the uh, authorized version in the King James Bible, it's the wheat and the tares. But uh, we call it the weeds and the wheat, which is probably better because people understand it unless you've been doing this for a long time. So I'm going to talk about that and what Matthew is talking about and uh, how he interprets Jesus in light of the experience of his church, of his Christian synagogue, and what that means. So, I don't know why they've done this in the lectionary, but we left off last week with Jacob uh, being born and then growing up, and Esau being born before him and growing up, and... uh, Jacob, uh, through his mother's advice, uh, getting Esau to sell his birthright to him. And remember that um, Jacob is portrayed in the story as someone that in the Hebrew means morally innocent. So we we could understand morally uh, innocent in two ways. One way is somebody who's guileless, you know, doesn't really, uh, is is, uh, innocent in that sense. Uh, Or morally innocent can also mean uh, morally indifferent or clueless about what it is to have some sort of a moral center. And from the jump, Jacob is portrayed as a grasping plotting individual. He comes out of his mother's womb grasping Esau's heel in the story. So what happened was he uh, tricked his father into giving him his blessing and his birthright. And Esau, who allowed this to occur initially because he's impulsive and has no impulse control of any kind, and agreed to do this because he was hungry. So Esau has now begun to perceive the full weight of what is going on, and he's going to come after Jacob. But just before that, Isaac, Jacob's father, Esau's father, uh, at the behest of his wife, Rebekah, who had come in to see him, he couldn't see anymore, Isaac. He wasn't able to see too well. He came, she came in and she said, I'm a, my life has been made weary from these Hittite women that Esau has married. I can't stand them. I don't like to be around them. And I don't want Jacob to marry one of these women in the country in which they found themselves. So Isaac... Uh, perceiving, I think, also that because of what he did by mistake with Esau, uh, said, I want you to go into our old former country and I want you to find a wife there. So next next week we're going to read about Laban, who he's working for, and we're going to read about Rachel, and we're going to read about Leah, and how Jacob is going to get there and he's going to be tricked. Uh, as he moves forward. But today, we, we miss this gap of Esau after him, but he's on the run, and he's heading towards this place. But he finds himself uh, in a place that, in the actual history of, of Israel, was not the first time it was discovered. 
but in the story it is. And Jacob goes there, and he's been traveling all, and he finds himself in a certain place, it says, and he lays down and goes to sleep, and he has a dream. And in the dream, we have the staircase, or Jacob's ladder, it's called in some places, but it actually means a staircase. And God speaks to him about this and about the angels coming and, there's all, and what his future is going to be. And so we have some understanding of how uh, people in, in uh, the ancient world or his ancient world understood this. So since the Green Sundays are about uh, teaching as well as preaching, I thought I'd tell you a little something about what we see in this text in terms of its origin and the sources that produced it. When I was in seminary, I was taught something called the four-source theory. In other words, the first five books of the Old Testament, and some of the subsequent books have fragments of this, have four sources. And they're sources that come from certain strains within the formation of the biblical text over time. And I want to talk about what they are and then also to give you uh, some information about the fact, I always say about various things, the situation on the ground is fluid. So the four sources are the Yahweh source, the Eloist source, the Deuteronomist source, and the priestly source. So the Yahweh source was written around 950 BCE, the Eloist source 850, the Deuteronomist source 600, and the priestly source 500, which is when the people of Israel were in captivity in Babylon. So these are the sources that put together and weave together the Pentateuch, the first five books. So today, we hear from the Yahweh source, and we hear from the Eloist source. The Yahweh source is the source that always describes God as being firmly embedded in history and with us in the midst of our human circumstances and so forth. And Yahweh is the God that closes the door of the ark. He's walking around. He's anthropomorphic. And Elohim, which is the other word for God, is the God that's in the mountain, in the mists. So you could say that Elohim is the God of the spirit, and you could say Yahweh is the God that is portrayed as the one who is imminent, right with us now in the midst of our circumstances. So in this biblical text, you see that uh, Jacob is listening in his dream to the staircase that goes up to heaven, the Eloist, and he's given certain instructions or does certain things in the holy place when he wakes up and he realizes that this is a holy place and he does some things, right? He takes the rock and he sets it upright and he pours oil on it and he does all of this to sort of, it, through the cult, uh, signify its uh, holy location. Beth El means the place of God. El is the word that is used sometimes as an abbreviation for God in, in the Old Testament. So Jacob realizes this and he begins to understand something. And that is that God has chosen him to fulfill his purposes even though his character is not unblemished. And so the readership, the people out of which this biblical text emerged, understand that God can choose who he wants. 
and that our own moral character is not dependent upon that, you know. I suppose a, a, a full-tilt boogie evangelical would say this, would say, I assume that the people who are not don't agree with me may in fact be morally superior. I'm not saved by my moral superiority. I'm saved by God's grace. And it takes me some time to begin to realize that that's a reality. We might say it somewhat differently as Episcopalians because we have other sources of authority than merely uh, what we understand the Bible to be as central. And that's the subject of another conversation. But today from this lesson, we understand God's presence and God's power. And that's how we understand it operating in the creation. Now, Paul is perfectly aware of this. There's been so much time spent on trying to figure out Paul from a perspective that is now not uh, appropriate, I think. N.T. Wright would say it's time to stop using 19th century questions to, or 19th century answers to, to 16th century questions and to ask uh, 21st century or give 21st century answers to 1st century questions. So Paul is trying to fit his new perspective, his new worldview uh, in this great narrative of Israel. And he's fully aware of all these stories. He understands what, what they are from his perspective as a pious Jew before his conversion. And today in Romans 8, he's talking about this issue of what it is that we have been given by God that equips us now for understanding something very important. And that is new creation. It is the fact that we are going to see that God is at work in creating a new creation. We are part of this new creation and that we are going to go through suffering and difficulty and adversity and at the end it will all be transformed into what God's purposes are. We're part of that and we will now reap those benefits as we come to understand it. So the thing that he's speaking about today is the Spirit of God. How the Spirit of God is at work in the lives of people. And that through the Spirit of God we have some way of understanding what God's purposes are and what our role is. And one of them is to have hope. And he says in the reading today, for in hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what is seen? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. The spiritual life, the spiritual journey that I talk about from time to time has five parts. Purgation, emptying, study, discipline, and patience. Purgation is an old word which means to purge your th habits of being and relating such that they're more in line with God's purposes for you. Emptying is the process in prayer and in thinking where you find yourself more able to push to the side the distractions that you feel in your life and your inability to focus. 
purgation, emptying, study, to be the best student of the deep things of Christian faith and belief and anything else you need to be a student of in order to accomplish uh, the goals of your career and your life and your relationships. Discipline is the creation of the internal self-regulation necessary to meet the challenges and demands in front of you on a daily basis. And patience is the fifth one and the most difficult one because it says that, like Paul does, you know, drives a lot of people nuts, including me, well, when is this going to happen? Right? When is this going to happen? So Christian preachers are talking about the time in which uh, God comes, Jesus comes, and we all participate in the general resurrection, and we all meet those we loved but no longer see. And we'll be able now to understand fully the transformed new creation. So it will appear in one sense to be the same, but it will be different. Just like the disciples and the apostles who saw the risen Jesus looked at him, did not initially recognize who he was and then saw ah, it's him, but he's different. He's not the same, right? And so we all have that promise in front of us. And Paul, in, in his usual very tightly reasoned and sometimes exasperating way, uh, speaks about that. And that's what it is in Romans 8. So in the, in the parable from Matthew, uh, I need to say this again. Three things you need to understand about Jesus' parables. One is, what did Jesus mean when he spoke it? The second is, what did the church that first wrote it down and heard it, both orally and in now written form, understood it to mean for them and their community? And what does it mean to us, if anything, in 2014? So we have the story, this is unique to Matthew, of the wheat and the weeds, or the wheat and the tares and the wheat, if you, however you want to say it. And it's about seed that is sown, and there's weed seed in the, in the wheat seed, and people have become aware that this is the case. And so they say to the master, what should we do? Should we go in and harvest it now? And he said, no, you need to wait because you need to have the weeds fully uh, come to, to uh, maturity. Then you can gather them up and you can separate the weeds from the wheat. And this is the way you have to do it. Uh, this is a parable of judgment. It's a parable of redemption. And it is a parable of sanctification. So what is being talked about here is uh, how do we understand this idea of judgment? What was the situation on the ground in Matthew's synagogue, his Christian synagogue? And what it was was a trait that appears to be present in Christian people from the jump, and that is, are we going to focus our attention on belonging and the community of faith and its own understanding of being on pilgrimage and following the Savior on the way, or do we need to be vigilant that before we start that process, we need to have everybody here on board with the same idea? Believing correctly as opposed to belonging. So do we need to be doctrinally savvy and to hold everybody's feet to the fire about all of these things before we start, 
Or do we see how these things form themselves as people seek to be faithful and move forward? So Jesus uh, is saying some things to this community. The first is that premature attempts to purge evil are premature. The second is that such attempts serve to cause disturbance and loss of faithful disciples in seeking to eliminate the unfaithful. You know, I've read essays by uh, certain species of Christians who say that it doesn't matter that the church is divided. It doesn't matter that we're a a group of vociferous sects. Don't you like that word? Vociferous sects. It sounds like Alka-Seltzer going into the... (laughs) Like this, right? So there are some who say it doesn't matter. And we, need, we all need to seek the truth, and we all need to do this, and if those aren't, well, they, they'll have to persevere, but we're, we're going to do what this is. And it causes an enormous amount of dissension. And the third is that the task of judging between good and evil belongs to Christ and not to us. You know, we're so quick to do this about a whole lot of other things. I remember years ago, Don Skinner in a discussion group here one time said, well, his parents, he lived in Ann Arbor, Michigan, grew up there, something like this. And he said, my parents used to say things, well, you know, the brewers, they eat garlic. (laughs) And their friends would all go, we know what that means, right? I mean, the, the, the level at which this can go, it can get shaved like, you know, one of the... I have a great cooking tool somebody gave me that's a, a, a shaver for garlic. So it was like that movie Goodfellas or whatever, the guy's in prison, and he said he used a razor blade to do it. But he says, when you make the spaghetti sauce, what you have to do is you really have to shave the garlic thin so it sort of just melts into the sauce, Right? Never mind, that's not on the subject, but there it is. <laughs> so here's from a commentary that I read this week about this passage. Matthew's, uh, however Matthew's frequent theme of a final judgment may sound to subsequent readers to the church originally addressed, it spoke two words clearly. First, do not fret over evildoers, for neither their present nor their future is your responsibility. And a lot of us become sick or crazy worrying about the fact that we need to make sure those people are moved into the correct way of thinking. I heard somebody say once to me, some people would rather be right than happy. And want everybody else to be on board with how that is. Second, God will bring history to a close with justice and the saints finally will be freed from abuse and oppression. The parable of the weeds in the wheat is therefore not threatening, but a comforting word. So when we understand this, we have to understand something about this idea of judgment. I've said this many times. When God's judgment and God's mercy collide, as they often do, God's mercy trumps God's judgment. That's what we believe about God's work in the world and God's grace, you know. 
Now, this is all complex, isn't it, because there are a whole lot of things that are mixed up, and I'm mixing the metaphors, but the karmic forces that are at work in the world are such that there are a whole lot of, you know, uh, uh, ambiguities and difficulties in making sense of all this. But the basic thing is, is that when God's judgment and God's mercy collide, God's judgment trumps, God's mercy trumps God's judgment. So I think the thing this Sunday is uh, to give thanks for that. Amen. Amen.